Welcome to episode 8 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. James Cohn here. <laughs> We're in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. Uh, I guess today I just wanted to start off asking James if he's seen anything particularly great since the last time we talked. Uh, I saw The Lobster, which was amazing. Yeah, I liked that too. Yeah, I really liked it. It's probably, I'd have to think, but it's one of the best movies I've seen. I was actually I was actually thinking about the lobster a lot when I watched uh, our movie of the month uh, movie of the minute co- yeah. uh, movie because that's I, all. Then I think it kind of worked out because there are some like similar. Yeah, I got a similar feeling too from both movies. Yeah, so. they're like quiet and absurdist. Definitely, I a huge fan of that director, and also it definitely met my expectations. So, did yeah. you see anything good since? Yeah, last, last night. Uh, last night we went out and saw um, the Nice Guys, which is Shane Black's new movie. Mm-hmm. It's like this hyper violent uh, action comedy. You could tell it was written by the same guy who did like Lethal Weapon and Monster Squad and stuff like that. You see like kids doing things that are like way above their age range and like <laughs> just horrific violence, but made funny in this nice. really weird way. I, I haven't even heard of that. It's been off my uh, radar, yeah. so I'll have to check that out. Uh, a lot of people haven't. It's like on its last legs I think it's down to like two screenings a day here but it's so good uh, cool (laughs) far exceeded expectations Um, but yeah I guess uh, a minute ago we were just talking about the movie The Minute um, which is the what is it a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence right (laughs) it's a mouthful yeah but uh, but yeah it's one of my favorite directors Roy Anderson it's the final movie in this trilogy of films he's been working on for over a decade and uh since you hadn't seen any of those i figured we checked that out um yeah that was the last movie on your best of 2015 list i hadn't seen yeah and um what else are we gonna be talking about today uh i recorded an interview with tim wolf who uh made this documentary the sons of tennessee williams uh which is um it's a record of what's of the current state of gay Mardi Gras crews in New Orleans and it's got a little bit of history about where they started uh, and it's this really interesting topic because it doesn't get covered much but it was the earliest civil rights on record for gay people in America oh, uh, yeah they had this like public assembly license like uh, pre-Stone Wall which is pretty interesting it's not it's not quite the violent um, lashback that Stonewall was but it's still an interesting document of uh, of gay culture in America um, and specifically New Orleans that doesn't really get talked about much which is pretty Very awesome cool. uh, and I guess all that's coming up to you right, right now, now. <laughs> Thank you. 
And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. Uh, this is where James and I bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Uh, this week, James uh, picked uh, the film, and I'm just going to let him grab the wheel here. So, are you ready for this title? Yeah. It's, it's not that bad. <laughs> a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence. I had to write that down because I keep forgetting. It's too long. But It's almost like an Argento title or something. Yeah, but anyway. Um, well, I picked this movie... Be- because you said you had never seen any of um, Roy Anderson's films, um, and it, he is definitely one of my favorite directors. Even though he's only directed three or four movies, but uh, anyway, he is Swedish, and he started out um, in the seventies. He made. This movie called A Swedish Love Story, which was actually like a really big hit in Sweden. And he followed it up with like a movie that didn't do as well. Then he did commercials for like 25 years. And all his commercials had this like very mordant kind of sense of humor. And uh, basically he just got a shit ton of money from these commercials, built his own studio and then in 2000 he released songs from the second floor which is like the first in a trilogy of films and seven years later he followed it up with you the living and then in 2014 uh he followed it up with a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence so uh i picked this one because it was the most recent one and it is like the final chapter in this trilogy he's been working on for a really long time. So I thought uh, it'd be a good entry point into his work. And uh, so anyway, what what did you think of the movie? Uh, I mean, it's definitely a James movie. I was thinking about that while I was watching it. <laughs> and it, it didn't surprise me earlier when you said that you enjoyed The Lobster. And like I said, these movies, I watched them like... I watched The Lobster on a Saturday, and then I watched Pigeon on a Branch on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, they felt like very similar to me. Just, they are. I think they are pretty similar. Yeah, it's like a quiet, absurdist uh, sense of humor that's also got like even in the title like an existential quality about it. Um, they build a trilogy at the beginning of this film as a trilogy about being human. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can already kind of get like the academic uh, angle he's coming from here. Yeah, and it, he's definitely a humanist filmmaker like even if you go back to his commercials um they were always like about people more so than like the products he was selling Mm -hmm. so just people in these ridiculous you know absurd situations and then at the end it'd be selling you on like life insurance or something but he's always kind of had that humanist slant and also from what i know like politically he's like a socialist as well and he actually um, help make political ads for the Democratic uh, Party in Sweden that kind of mm-hmm. helped turn the election in the 70s. So, like, he's definitely coming, yeah, from a slightly academic yeah. background, and he's definitely like a humanist, I would say, but I, absurdism is definitely key to all of his films and to his style which is like a very particular style too yeah Um, i'm honestly not surprised to hear you say that he did commercials just after watching this film just because uh 
there's so many scenes that are perfectly little encapsulated, like, mm-hmm. uh, just tiny, like, specimens almost. Right. And it's kind of smart that the movie starts off in this museum, like, the Natural History Museum, where you see, like, uh, you see, like, all these display cases with all these, like, perfectly arranged, uh, just scenes. Because mm-hmm. that's what this movie feels like. It's got these, like, uh, even though there are a couple storylines that go throughout, it, it's all these little tiny things that you kind of observe on their own. Right. Um, and it also reminded me of paintings. Uh, I know it was titled after a Bruegel painting. Uh, right. According the, to the, about the two hunters or something. Yeah. Um, it's like a winter scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, and there's some birds kind of looking out on these humans hunting. And, you know, I guess he took that as an inspiration. Like, what were the birds thinking looking mm-hmm. out at the humans and like you said in the very first scene you have a human like looking at this bird in a in a case and then the whole movie feels like kind of uh like a snapshot of human yeah existence and the absurdity of that and the, the movie's kind of still like a painting like a lot of shots um they might have one character moving uh but most of what's going on in the background is just like fixed uh, and it's just kind of weird to like behold this like yeah perfectly orchestrated thing, but it's also very bare and muted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, the movie has this like stillness to it. Where I planned on watching all three of these, um, I, I had some time constraints, but uh, I don't know if I could sit through six hours of this in a row. Like it's probably better to space them out. Yeah, I mean, and and the thing is, they were spaced out. Like it took him seven years pretty much to make each film and he also is notorious for doing like a lot of takes Mm -hmm. so like because there's no editing really like it's just a single camera fixed and then like you said he arranges everything like a painting with the lighting and all that and then uh, yeah he just does so many takes over and over to get that perfect one because if one reaction is off or you know one thing isn't quite what he likes it kind of throws that whole style off so it seems like a very tedious uh way to make films yeah it's very meticulous for sure and i definitely uh i do get the sense that like when i was watching it's more like watching a moving painting Mm -hmm. than really like watching a film like there's not much drama in like the characters of the story it's more something that I think a lot of people just like appreciate artistically, but maybe not be head over heels like, you know, in love with these films. Yeah, I don't really have a lot of emotional swells watching this. I, I there was that one scene in the uh, the bar where uh, a waitress sells um, liquor to a, an army mm-hmm. uh, in exchange for kisses. Yeah, uh, which is like. The, the way that scene plays out is very beautiful, and like I did kind of like get into it more than other parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of the vignettes, I was like, "Oh, that's amusing," or "That that looks cool," but I didn't yeah. like fall in love with anything outside of that one and shot. I, and I think that's how you kind of have to judge, or at least how I judge the three films and the trilogies. Basically, like how many of the vignettes or the scenes really like affected me, right? And in this one. You know, I'll say that his first one in the trilogy, Songs from Second Floor, is like a flat out like masterpiece, if not one of the best movies of like that decade. Like it really is that good. Um, And in that one, the scenes have like a little more weight and more punch to them. Like Mm -hmm. Pigeon on a Branch 
is a little more lighthearted, I think, until the end. Yeah, it gets really violent in the last, like, ten minutes. Right, which is, like, you know, we talked about he's this humanist filmmaker, and he's always kind of been empathetic towards humans, you know. But at the end of this one, there's a few scenes that are really, like, like you said, violent and, like, over, like dark to a whole nother level and it seems like a very odd way for him to end this trilogy you know yeah well uh there's a couple deaths early in the movie that are played for humor and they're kind of quiet you basically just watch this old person die and then people have these like sort of mundane reactions to it it's kind of funny uh but yeah at the end there's like slaves being burned alive and there's this monkey being tortured in a science lab it's, yeah and it's like, hard to watch and as the slaves are being burned there's like these bourgeois people that are you know sipping on liquor yeah being entertained by it and it is a weird parallel to the beginning because like one of the very the very first scene where a guy dies while trying to open a bottle of wine and then he's just laying there in the dining room dead and his wife like doesn't even know and she's cooking yeah in the other room like that made me laugh you know it's dark but it is funny, and then the same thing, a guy dies uh, after like buying a meal and a beer for himself, and then the cashier is like, so who wants this? Yeah, as the guy's like lying there dead, like all that's kind of played for laughs, but then at the end, like, I don't, that, you know, we're not supposed to laugh at that, it's horrifying. Right. So it seems like he takes that in a darker direction, and it's just strange to me because None of that is really present in the other two movies in this trilogy. And he kind of ends on like a sour note, which makes me think like maybe he's a little more cynical than he lets on. Yeah. I, I think the bridge between those two is the uh, woman uh, who's trying to take her jewels to the afterlife. <laughs> which her, is uh, super funny. Yeah, like her uh, son's trying to steal this purse from her that she's got her jewels with her on her deathbed and she won't let go. And she makes these pathetic little squeals while he tries to take the jewels away from her. And that that part is like a little bit of both. It's like, oh my god, that's fucked up. But at the same time, I'm like laughing at it. Right. Uh, and you're just laughing at like how absurd these situations are. And I do, like, like you said earlier, I think you could definitely see how 25 years of shooting commercials has influenced. Because it's like all the scenes kind of have that one punchline or whatever yeah and some work better than others um but anyway i yeah it's hard to really like judge this movie as as a whole like i I think really you just have to see all of his films and you either like his style and you're in or or you're not well I, i wanted to ask you about this like kind of theory i had watching it um so you have the two novelty salesmen are kind of like a uh kind of like the biggest through line through the movie yeah they're really the only like i mean there's recurring themes and characters Characters. that come in and out but they're really the main yeah people in the film i mean besides them the only thing that repeats that often is the line uh i'm I'm happy to hear you're doing fine (laughs) which is kind of this like stage play uh absurdist thing where you kind of repeat a line and just becomes less and less meaningful every time yeah it it reminds me a lot of um like Samuel Beckett, mm-hmm. like kind of like waiting for Godot yeah. type situations where I'm happy to hear you're doing fine. As you know, saying that as like someone's holding a gun, right? Looking right. like they're about to kill themselves, and like when they're obviously not fine. Yeah, and that, that's a lot of 
the film too is like people on the phone like missing things that are happening yeah like there's a barber that gets on the phone and then his only customer walks out another guy's on the phone and he misses this fight inside of a restaurant and that you see that a lot in his films is like stuff happening in the background yeah is more important than the foreground but yeah getting back to the um novelty salesman uh they're okay so they have this like briefcase full of like fake vampire teeth and monster masks and uh laugh bags (laughs) yeah uh so I was wondering while I was watching it if they're supposed to be kind of a stand-in for Roy Ross Anderson Roy Anderson Roy Anderson yeah Uh, I was wondering if they were like a stand-in for the director because uh it's kind of like this thing where um they're trying to entertain people Mm -hmm. but they're too depressed to do it uh, and there's kind of an abs- like uh, this absurd repetition to him returning to the well on these same gags over and over again to, to where yeah. it becomes like punishing. And uh, the, the character keeps repeating the phrase, uh, we want to help people have fun. Uh, which I guess... Yeah. And by, I, the, by the end, he's like so devastated. Like he can't even want to help people have fun anymore. And I kind of was thinking of the director while I was watching I, it. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because Songs from the Second Floor kind of has a similar like there's characters in and out, but it does focus on like one main character. And I, yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. Like I, you know, I hadn't really thought of that, but now that you say it, um, I think they also, there's a duality to them too. Like the one salesman is like kind of mean mm-hmm. and he takes his like existential angst out on like other people and is kind of, and then the other one just is like a crybaby yeah. <laughs> and sad. And maybe they do kind of represent two sides of Roy Anderson's, you know, personality. I, you know, I, we'd, have, I'd have we'd have to, to ask, ask him, him yeah. but I do think there's something to that. And that's a, yeah, that's a really good point. That, that, that was the one thing that... Because they're just trying to entertain, but it's just like, how can you entertain? There's so <laughs> much like awful things happening, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think... Uh, what made that interesting to me was um, the scene where they go to the diner and uh, this like 18th century army comes in and like takes over the diner and kicks all the women out mm-hmm. uh, and they all go off to war um, it's interesting to me that the way the past keeps coming to disrupt the movie and disrupt like what makes things funny mm-hmm. like with the slaves and uh, just different like parts of violence uh, Yeah, it's just interesting to me like is that something that I'm supposed to be picking up on where like yes. he's trying to entertain you and then the past comes in and like makes it ugly? I, I think um I think it has a lot to do with like Swedish history. Right. Too. Um and I mean that's the thing, like I'm not, you know, any expert on Swedish history, but I definitely got the sense that that that's kind of what was going on is like basically the history keep of Sweden like keeps coming up and like haunting the like present day um these kind of present day like banal situations and the past just kind of rears its ugly head um yeah there there's definitely a historical thread going through the movie that I think a lot of American viewers probably won't pick up on but I think it's definitely there I mean, yeah. whether or not you get the specifics, like it's definitely uh, a version of colonialism that yes. he's uh, he's bucking against. Um, which I mean, I, I think that's pretty universal mm-hmm. uh, for most people would would at least uh, recognize that ugly impulse. Um, yeah, and like 
songs from the second floor really delved into like the economy like you know there's a lot of scenes like guy loses his job and he's holding on to his boss's legs as he drags him down the hall saying i worked here for 30 years and like that so that first movie in the trilogy kind of dealt with like economic collapse and now this one yeah there does seem to be like a colonialism thread throughout Mm -hmm. it so i do think he's being like critical you know about sweden but you can apply those things to every you know to the world right you know it's not just specific to sweden but i think you know there is definitely a lot of swedish history throughout his films I guess I have to ask you after seeing all three of them. Uh, the the title card at the beginning of this says um, the final part of a trilogy about being human. Mm-hmm. What is he saying about being human to you? I mean, I think. Oh, it's I mean it's tough. It's like yeah, it's, it's not every, solid. It's everything, you know. It's like it's the banality of just living in these kind of mundane situations that are also like grotesque under the surface and like kind of how despair and stuff can be side by side with like happiness and just kind of these conflicting emotions about being a human. And like I said, I think ultimately I thought at least that he like was positive about the human experience, but the way this film ends you know, he's ending the trilogy on this kind of like cynical note makes me think that he isn't as like impressed with humanity as I thought. Yeah. But, um, I, I, yeah, I think that's why it appeals to me. Cause like, I'm really like absurdism and, you know, the idea that life doesn't really have meaning. It's just kind of what we give it. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what all these films kind of feel like to me is like, He's coming from that that angle, but there's a lot of kind of different things going on. Yeah, you know, throughout all the movies, like it's sad but funny. It's like happy but depressed. It's you know, yeah, you can feel him reaching for something that's maybe like a little beyond his grasp, but like it's it's the whole point is the fact that he is reaching. Yeah, I mean, you're to think that you could sum up human existence in three films (laughs) you know that's a bold undertaking i think he definitely touched on a certain view of of humanity right you know that's a little bit cynical maybe but you know that's why i'm such a huge fan of these films and like i said i do think songs from the second floor kind of perfectly encapsulates like that message more more than pigeon on a branch like i did really like it but i do think if you appreciate pigeon on a branch you definitely need to go back and watch his earlier two films yeah i'm gonna, I'm gonna go back I, I really do think i need to give it some like breathing room like i don't want to exhaust myself because uh, it is kind of like a slow drift downstream kind of experience yeah i think a lot of people that might check this movie out um after this are gonna be i think they'll appreciate it on an artistic level because it just looks beautiful and it is like funny in parts but um i don't know if everyone's gonna love it as much as as i do but 
You don't I need hope to. They do. Yeah. Yeah. You don't. You don't need to please everybody. Yeah, that's true. And I do think they're worth watching, just because his style is so like specific. Like nobody else makes movies the way that he does. Yeah, it's very like tightly controlled, meticulous uh, settings, and then like this really overreaching philosophy. It's an interesting dynamic. And all, and also the fact that like, you know. The, all the actors, apparently he only uses like amateur actors and they all have this kind of grotesque like white Oh, they're so pale. Paint. Yeah, they're so pale and to me, so like in the in the beginning of the movie like you said, he's, the guy's looking at the pigeon uh, in the display and the, you know, the pigeon's dead mm-hmm. and we're also, as we're watching the movie all these people with the white pale face it's like they're the walking dead right it's like they're they're living but they're already dead and i think that's like a huge thing because that's all of his movies the characters look like that and you could definitely see like yeah he just views humans as like walking you know meat like they're already on their way to it also reminds me of like stage makeup too like uh because it it is a very like false uh, like artificial situation they're all in and it looks like they're painted for the theater uh, right. More so than they are painted for film, which is kind of an interesting thing too. It's like the theater of life. Yeah, you know. So I don't know. I definitely um, recommend that people check it out, and definitely check out the trilogy. I, like you said, I don't know if I'd watch them all in a row. Kind of <laughs> watch them, and, you know, give it some time to kind of marinate, and then work your way through it. But it's, yeah, it's definitely something worth checking out. I'm glad you at least appreciated yeah, it. Yeah, I, I liked it. It was just kind of overwhelming, but that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Kids growing up, I guess our fondest memories were Mardi Gras. You were always in costume for Mardi Gras. Whether you were a sailor, if you were an Indian, if you were a clown. And then one year, my mother and cousin decided to dress me as Scarlett O'Hara. It was a gorgeous green satin dress. It was lovely. Most of us had no idea how to do makeup. So the first year we got The Undertaker from Boltman's to come and he did our makeup. You wonder why we didn't look so good. He wasn't used to doing makeup on people that moved. Instead of having a debutante, as they did at the straight balls, we had a debutramp. Of course, the maids were all men in female attire. That's a tramp. We're not going to let anybody stop us from enjoying ourselves. We're doing absolutely nothing wrong. And so we we just stood up, that's all. All right, now I'm here with uh, documentarian Tim Wolf. Uh, we're in a backyard in, was this the Bywater? Upper Ninth Ward. Upper Ninth Ward. Um, we're about, about to talk about your documentary, The Sons of Tennessee Williams. That came out about five years ago, is that about right? It's, um, it's had a couple of premieres, but the first was at uh, 
the summer of 2010 in uh, San Francisco at the San Francisco Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. And then it got reworked for a while, and then it was 2011 at a premiere at Palm Springs, which is more of a mainstream film festival, and then I got a distributor, and then they wanted me to, you know, I changed it even more, so by the time the DVD release was in 2012, it had like three different releases. Okay. But you can do that now. <laughs> Nobody can tell you you can't recut your movie. You know, right. It belongs to me. And uh, I, I've made it better every every step of the way. That's kind of like a painter's you know, process almost, right? To say that you can't touch it after you've had your premiere, I mean, that's it's no longer relevant. Are you still editing now? No. No? no you're no, done? No, no, yeah. No. Made made one for for Channel 12, the PBS station here, and uh, last year. They show it every year. And uh, they're going to keep it because, you know, nowadays, I mean, I guess there's some legal paperwork on the movie, but I mean, there's a contract. But I'm not sure that I have any ownership of it. You know, it's mine. It's really uh -huh. weird. Do you um do you see a distribution coming out for the newest cut, or is the DVD probably going to stay? No, that's only for Channel Twelve okay. and the Vimeo on demand. Okay, gotcha. So I steer people there because I don't want them to think I still have a movie that is dated as far as uh, different milestones of progress for LGBT people have been, you know, have occurred since the movie came out, and I wanted it to be updated. That's right. really the only reason I did that. And this is a documentary about um, gay Mardi Gras culture? Yeah I, I, yeah, I guess I got into it because I went to a gay ball in 1992, and um, couldn't believe my eyes. It's quite, quite colorful. Um, certainly never saw 3,000 gay and lesbian people in tuxedos and long dresses, you know, <laughs> in one place at one time. I yeah. can, you know, but then it was the 25th anniversary in 1992, you know, so I might have made a mental note of that, but um, it wasn't until they were introducing the, 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 you know, they were sort of reflecting on the 25th anniversary that I kind of counted back. I was like, oh, it's before Stonewall. And they were talking about other crews that existed before that, even like, you know, like eight years before Arminius. So I was like, wow, automatically it became important history that nobody knew about. So when you're making a documentary, best thing you can do is try to tell a story that has not been told before. And if you can find your your subjects, if, you can, if they're passionate about it and they, they want you to succeed, it helps a lot. So in this case, I built it around the, the significance of the civil rights accomplishments and then was able to show the entire world how freaky a Mardi Gras, gay Mardi Gras <laughs> ball is, you know? Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to make them sit there and watch that. You, know? you had to anchor it in something significant. That's what people want out of documentaries. Frankly, I like it when, you know, I wanted to make a movie that didn't even deal with the heavy issues at all. I mean, I, I, as some people think, I glazed over certain heavy subjects. I'm like, well, that's what Mardi Gras does. That's what we, that's what the queens here that I know do. Right. If something hits you really hard, you break out a glue gun. <laughs> and I wanted the movie to reflect that. You know, I feel like it does. Do you see uh, the recognition for that free Stonewall distinction? Do you see that coming out more? And more recognition for um, that? It, 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 there, were, there were like angry activists who just, were so upset that I would equate 
the crews here with the f people that fought at Stonewall, and I didn't equate. And, you know, I mean, that was the first time that gay people fought back. Right. But the 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 the, the, the major occurrence that the, the crews in New Orleans were able to accomplish the major major civil right was public assembly. Right. This public assembly was specifically illegal for for queers. In New Orleans and basically everywhere around the U.S., so to have film footage of queens out in 1954 in the daytime embracing, kissing, dancing, dressing in drag—all these laws that were broken—you know, I mean that was that was um, not political enough for some people. Well, I got to ask you about that a little bit, um, just because my favorite part of the movie was just basically getting a glimpse into what life was like before the uh 60s i know uh yeah was that something that sort of came out while you were filming the story or was that something you planned on sort of like i said I, about? I didn't even want to have to cover that I mean, in my <laughs> mind um talking about i knew exactly what kind of movie i didn't want to make i did not want to make one of those gay docs where everybody's sobbing on camera right your subjects are crying and the goal is to get them crying so the audience cries and i'm like oh my god <laughs> could possibly edit that for four years. Yeah. You know, something that drove down that road. And so I, um, wait a minute, rephrase the question again. I was just asking uh, that history of like pre-civil rights, like 60s. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. The more I got into it, you know, I was like, you have to set the stage for what was occurring before in order to show a milestone that right. occurred or a, a progress that was achieved. You had to start there. So I did. And I didn't do it too much, but... Um, I made my point. Every one of the interviewees had something scary or negative, and it escalated until you know people were being murdered, beaten to death. So, you know, I think it made the point. Um, but other movies have done it more, and, and I just figured everybody knew those movies already. Yeah, and but, sort of you know, there's a whole new generation of people. They don't know a forty-year-old gay documentary or a, you know before and after Stonewall. Those documentaries, they they don't know. Them. So, I mean, you know, I, I, um, I got that. I forgot the perfect balance between what I needed, what I dutifully covered, and what I really wanted to cover. And is that uh, sort of why the movie bounces back and forth from the current day to the... Uh, yeah, that sort could of be one thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's... I got to tell you, I mean, I went to CalArts to study experimental film and all that, and I never thought I'd ever make a documentary. And so I just... You know, it's a very basic structure. It really is. You know, it's tried and true. And then nothing in there is terribly out of the box. But it was my job to deliver this in a package that the most people possible could, could see and understand and like. So, you know, I, I, I decided to, to use only their... Uh, voices for, for I didn't want to step in and be the storyteller the interpreter a voice of narration or whatever maybe that's the filmmaker's voice or maybe it's somebody they hire but it's the same thing so I just um, you know I wanted I wanted them to speak um, without me trying to pr uh, impress upon them that what they say should be poignant it was a very re relaxed uh, interview setup where we showed old ball footage and they didn't even know the camera was on it. It's pretty incredible that some of that nice footage things. survived. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, it's Tulane, manuscripts department. 
had um, that 16 millimeter footage from oh, wow. 1969, which is you know really cool because it's Stonewall and it's before Stonewall by a few months, but there it is and straight people, gay people, they're in a public place, you know, nobody's nobody's in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, movie mostly focuses on the two uh, current. Um, gay crews that still exist, right? There's uh, Arminius and... It was, it was tough for me. I, mean, I could have made a four-part, you know, eight-hour series about all everybody's stories, you know, and it was so tempting, and I, and I almost thought, well, why am I doing this? Am I doing, you know... So, I just... I had to focus on the oldest, and then the oldest living people, right. to get them interviewed. Uh, and that turned out to be revolving primarily around Petronius and Amon Ra and that crew called Yuga. So when I started to make the movie, I found out it was Armenius's 40th birthday. So I was like, God, cool. <laughs> what a 10 year anniversary, you know. They always go, go, go crazy, have different, they drag every queen out, you know, every former king and queen out and all that stuff. So, you know, that's what motivated it. And then, and then at that point, Armenius became my focus for the modern day. And, uh, you know, you probably know, there's thousands of hours of crew ball footage that I could have used. Yeah. Everybody's anecdotal, whatever. And, yeah, people were left out. And that uh, was criticized a lot. It seemed to be a very easy first question at Q&A about the absence of African-Americans in the movie. Well, I was always like, well, you know what? In fact, the first question came from a prominent director whose movie I'd just seen, and I remember thinking, well, David, I didn't see any black people in your movie either. And in <laughs> fact, there are African-Americans in my movie. There's someone that gets interviewed. There's someone that did not want to get interviewed, whose costume is shown, and all these you know, participants. It's, so it was very hard to explain to people why um, that another given that I went with in the making of the movie was that everybody knew that the races were segregated in 1959 in the Deep South, in fact, everywhere. So an absence of African Americans would have, you know, been a, 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 a larger civil rights story than what I ended up trying to tell. I mean, I really, you know, I mean, it was a tough issue to to not deal with right. for the movie because I would have had to have engaged you know, inevitably many of the subjects themselves are racist and even though they would have danced around their answers, you know, they did. I really would have <laughs> There's a couple of things I was like, oh, I cannot put that in. Yeah. Nice, warm-hearted kind of stuff along the lines of some of my best friends. And I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that to these, to these men. Um, you know, and, and, and uh, it's, it's, it was a tough choice and, um, you know, I got a lot of trouble. Well, do you mind if I ask you then about, uh, the movie, you sent me a couple clips from the other day that you're working on, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mother? Yeah, I'm working on it. It's cool. Um, that seems like a completely different take, uh. Yeah, on New Orleans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my neighborhood, so I feel like I'm qualified. And that's, that's coming from, like, uh the queer bounce scene or is there some, some little um, deeper than that it's it's more pageants i mean pageants. katie red makes that bridge between bounce and the pageants but the pageants are you know a new that's just been around a long 
hundred right. years or more. God knows we've been pageanting <laughs> whatever the term is <laughs> since the beginning of, of discovering one another, I guess. But um, now transgender culture is so people are, are willing to um, sit through a documentary about transgender individuals and so this the pageants um, that always attracted those who are uh, sort of um, like performers female impersonating performers right and um, actual transgenders transgender women so it's um, a safe place for transgender women now in an incredibly unsafe part of the world. And, you know, Club Fusions burned down, and that was like the cathedral of the whole thing, the safe space. And you had Seals Glass Act and all that, but... Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on that, but it's, it's incredibly easy, hard to get... Um, it's incredibly hard to find money to make a movie. Right. I mean, I... Um, everybody's making a movie. So why should they help you with your movie? Why should they give you money? <laughs> Everybody has a Kickstarter. Everybody has a GoFundMe coming. Right. It's hard to We're get. We're all just uh, going to get the same amount of money back and forth. Um, well, uh, just going back to the um, to the two surviving Mardi Gras crews. Uh, no, there's there's like four. There's four. Five. Oh, okay. The two the two in the dock dock are the only two I'm really aware of. Yeah. Amon Ra, Armenius, Petronius is still around. Uh huh. Satyricon. Right. A window, which is an African American crew that started in the 90s. Um, and there was, there was a, like a crew of narcissists trying to start up. The crews like fact, fracture and come back together. Well, I know, I know you're just talking about like safe, like uh, safety concerns a minute ago. Like, do, are you kind of surprised that they haven't taken on more of a public? Uh, the balls? Yeah. Or do you think there's like a really good value in keeping it like a private? Uh, it's not event? private. I mean, it's certainly for Armenians, anybody can walk in, walk in from the street as long oh, okay. as they're somewhat nicely dressed and buy a ticket to, to get in. It's yeah. not an invite only uh, no, affair. No, no, no. I mean, you know, I think Amon Ra is, but that would just be it's just a, a shtick. <laughs> no, I mean they they've. I say they've been public since. They went to the state and got a charter in 1965. You know, I mean, that's pretty public, right? I mean, it's for two men to walk in and say, "We have a crew and we need a we need a, a charter." You know, well, it's not very strange because they're they're men, and all the crews had mostly were men back then. So right. why would they why would they think anything? You know, they got their status and they were able to rent the municipal auditorium in some cases. And, you know, all this before 1970. Um, so the, uh, I don't know if you know anything about this, but do, do you know if the gay Easter parade that goes uh, through the French quarter, is that a lot of the same people or is that a different? Oh uh, yeah, it is a lot of the same people. Yeah. Yeah. I think Tony, Tony Leggio has something to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. And the Bourbon Street Awards. That's it. Yeah. That's where the costumes come out that the, the, the fat Tuesday after their ball and they compete. Armenius like won every won every award. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Could be rigged. 
And, and I was just uh, talking to you about this a minute ago, but my wife just went to the costume uh, lecture they had at the US oh, yeah. event. Oh, 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 that, yeah. 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 Um, There's also a workshop to learn how to make the costumes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, do, do you know if your doc has some sort of, um, you think it's inspiring more, like, public displays? I know it displays? has. Oh, no, no, I mean, I thought you were going to say that has it inspired people to join the cruise. It oh, really that too, has. yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I get people just about every ball that say I joined the crew or I, I'm here because of the movie, which makes sense because it's out there and they never heard of it. And they're like, wow, look at that. When they That's go, amazing. Yeah. But still, it's really cool. Yes, it is. I mean, they were, you heard in the movie, they, you know, one inter- interviewee was saying he was worried that, that they were all just going to die off. Right. You know, but now, God, there's 69 members in Armenia's. There was never more than 20. They jokingly said that they would cap it at 69 <laughs> because it would never get that big. Yeah. <laughs> now, they've, they've kept it. They, you know, they said, sorry, you can't join. Wait for somebody <laughs> to fuck up and, 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 you know, get storm off or right. something like that. And then you can join. But, you know, and, and 70% of them are below the age of 30. Oh, wow. Or at least under the age of 40. So and there's a future huge. there. Yeah, there's a huge future there. Yeah, and they've got a really good spot, too, the Saturday before uh, that Tuesday every yeah. year. So lots of people in town. But they deserve it, you know? They, they worked really, really, really hard, and they're going to do 50th. Next one's 49, and they do 50, which will be huge. You should really, really try to come. I guarantee you Michael Meads and Charles will be there. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think oh. they were pretty hooked as of last year, so. Yeah, it's, it surprised me, you know? I mean, because there's a folky kind of patina on this costuming, you know, that, that um, I'm really always happy with it when a real artist, like, appreciates it for its its uh, ingenuity, ingenuity, whatever the term is. <laughs> Are you a member of any of the crews? Like an official no. member? No. 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 <laughs> no. I don't. Yeah. Say that emphatically. <laughs> yeah, there. Um, it's a lot of time. It takes yeah. a lot of time. A lot of demands. A lot of you know commitments. And uh, so I have my hands full. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess I also wanted to ask you. Uh, I saw Bianca Del Rio was in the movie. Yeah. Uh, how exciting has that career been to watch lately? Oh my God, it's so great. You know, I think her movie just came out this week. It did. Yeah, it's really. Not, it's not like for uh, streaming yet, but it's like hitting the film festival rounds right now. Oh, good! I can't wait. I hope so much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I. Yeah, it's so funny, you know, to to have him. <laughs> he's the most famous drag queen on planet Earth now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's bigger than RuPaul. RuPaul can't go to. Uh, Brussels and sell out an entire theater. I mean, maybe maybe he could, but anyway, point is, very proud. You very can almost impressed. sense that on the show, too, that he was, like, kind of uh, bigger than the what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, he was probably handpicked to win. But, oh, yeah. You know, I, I felt that way this year, too. I felt that Bob the Drag Queen, queen was handpicked to uh, win. That yeah. was so fun to watch, though. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, I love him. I can't wait to see him. But I, I saw, it's funny, this, this Mardi Gras, I had, we have some costumes that we pick up at costume sh- um, sales and all that when they, like Nord, Nord will sell their costumes. Yeah. And so Roy was there, like, as a kid, sewing costumes, and uh, 
we were going through the rack, and I and it said made by Roy Haylock. Wow. <laughs> this black crow kind of outfit, I guess you'd say. It was like tight leotards and kind of shredded arms and black. And, you know, it was quite a contrast to the day because everybody else was in colors. And right. In black. But then, for the whole day, all over, you know, he's... I never even imagined bumping into him. And then I'm coming down Ursuline, and there he is. <laughs> like at 6 p.m. at the end of the day. And I was like, I can't believe that. Look, and I showed him the tag, and he remembered the show. He was really nice. I've never had the heart to, uh, to toward myself, I mean, to ask him if he likes the movie or not. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> He's pretty funny, isn't it? He's hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? I mean, not that, that one came out of left field. You know, if I, certainly if I had known, I mean, I, I had five days to shoot that movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is a post Katrina coming out of the ashes story. When I go on my trips for the U.S. State Department, I tell the story of like from Katrina, ash pile to Netflix. And, uh. You know, I'd love to have shot it for like six months. It'd be great. And have camera people and follow people home. And, you know, I couldn't. I had the people were even dying on me. People died before the shoot. People died right after the shoot. I had to get them in that chair, get everything out of them that I possibly could. Next, next, we were like five a day for three days or something. And then we shot the ball and then we shot the, the den. What's like that the n- number one thing you'd like love to do if you had more time and money for that? Oh my god, I wanted the mug shots from the raid, from the oh, Yuga yeah. raid. And I got this gay lawyer that I knew was so plugged in. She said he tried, I believe him, but he said, no way. To have those pictures, all 96, flashing as the stories were told, you know, it would have been great. Carlos Rodriguez, the first Queen of Petronius, was the person that made me decide to make the movie because we would sit at the voodoo lounge for hours and he would tell me these stories and was so animated I could see it was a movie mm-hmm. you know he would have been a big star and he died before the shoot shit instead of one picture of him that people laugh at because his energy is so amazing <laughs> and um, stuff you know stuff like that I wish um, you know everybody wishes for more shooting but five days you know so, so at the end of it I just said you know, it was. You know, I thought maybe I could get the gay crews to get together and watch it. You know, right. please that little scrapbook what they did. You're um, still touring all over the world with it, sort of. Right? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's used in conjunction with. Uh, now I um, try to inspire other people, LGBT people, uh, uh, filmmakers of, of all persuasions, to record. Uh, the personal histories of the oldest LGBT people in their communities all over the world. So that's kind of what I did here. So I was like, wow, rather than just going and showing this movie, answering the same questions and leaving nothing behind, you know, that I can, uh, part of it would be doing interviews myself with, with the help of local people who might then take over the process or, or, or not, you know, the point is, if somebody had interviewed my subjects, all eight or ten of them, in 1968, about what their lives were like, and the gay crews, and the, their childhoods, and you know what, 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 you know their fears and all this stuff, 
I would have fucking used that whole thing. I would have oh, yeah. I'd be down there ripping out. You know, I would have made a so much different of a movie. This, this past and present. And uh, so I say, you know, that's why. That's why we do this. So I went to Burma in uh, February, and we did twenty hours of, of interview with wow. several older people, and then the young activists themselves were all interviewed. And you can't even say it's not like putting a price on it. It's like saying putting a placing a value on on recorded history instead of lost history. I mean, it's impossible to calculate. It's just, but to say you know why, I, my job is not to go there and then come home and then try to beat my way through a translation and try to cut it into something and interpret it in some way. That's not the point. The point was that I met with the Human Rights um, Film Festival and school in in. in and, and, you know, one sweet little girl had, like, slipped me a DVD that was a lesbian film that she'd made, but by and large, there wasn't anything else done. And I, and I said, well, maybe you use the footage. Maybe you just refer to the footage. Maybe the foot, you know, maybe one of the people stands out and you make a movie about them. And, you know, you never know why. So that's what I did. Was, uh, was Katrina kind of a catalyst for wanting to document uh, uh Basically, lost left of the culture. Stuff that would lost, yeah, right. be lost. Yeah, so much was lost even in the storm. Yeah, yeah, that and uh, I'm telling you, I mean, with lot, you know, destroyed business, destroyed house. You know, were you around? Yeah, I'm from Shumet. Ah. <laughs> so you know, you're right. <laughs> that you grabbed onto something at that point to pull yourself back to, you know, to to to, to for the shock to go away. That everything was so different. That's what this did. I mean, that's that was a couple of things that like amazed me was just that there were so many uh, documents that even existed from before the storm, just because it was kind of dangerous to document that kind of uh, activity. Yeah. And then the fact that what was what was taken survived is like another amazing thing. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I lucked out with the, the the practical kind of like police history stuff. Yeah. Where uh, somebody from Tulane had done their their master's thesis on 20th century gay culture in New Orleans, had the Fernando Rios um, murder stuff, clippings, all the anti-gay laws, um, different times picayune publishing of names, that kind of thing. It, it was all given to me in a package. It's like the huge bonus, God, because I was not about. I would have just cut the ball, cut the 50th, the 40th ball, and, you know, I, I, I wasn't capable of doing that level of research. Definitely not. So it was great. Yeah, and then people were vain, so they have pictures, and sometimes <laughs> they, they were clinging to them while the waves came in, I don't know. Jesus. But I still had them. And, you know, I heard about pictures, people be like, yo, I got this picture of me in drag when I was six years old, eight years old, my brothers, also I put them in male drag, and we're got a picture and he's like as soon as I find that picture oh that'll be a good story you know and I'm like so he interviewed him on the thing and then one day he just was like Eureka he was up in an attic and he found this picture and it's it's in the movie it's so great to you know you know I used like everything I was given right people think oh my god you must have had just rooms how did you sort through I use everything yeah I mean the first edits of the movie make it look like I didn't have enough get better at it throughout the years the three years that I edited it and I'm like I know just now how to make it look very endowed <laughs> it came from seriously nothing you know, 
Um, do you consider yourself like a documentarian? Is that your number one? Uh... Oh, God, I don't know. I guess so now. I mean, my credibility's on the line there. Let me go. <laughs> I claim to be. Um, no, I, I just but, didn't know. Like, I... yeah, I'm, I'm into it. I'm, I'm quite into it. I, I uh, for one thing, it's unrealistic for me at this point. Um, fairly unrealistic for anyone to, you know, my work that I write. Ballad of Yes and No, my script that I wrote after Katrina, who cost millions of dollars. You know, it's, it's not going to happen. I can, I can try to sell the script or something, but you know, the documentary is truly now your phone. <laughs> you have a story to tell, you know. Right. So it's not necessarily well. They shot ended uh, on money, Tangerine. Yeah, they shot I Tangerine on those iPhones. Yeah, I know uh, with. Some help. Oh well, yeah, yeah. It doesn't look like a uh, look like off the cup production, yeah. But um, so I now I'm really really into it, and I have a you know I have a hero I met at film school. He came to our Cal Arts when I was there for a week or something. And Les Blank, and you know I'm like I want to be Les Blank. Yeah. You no, know? because Les Blank, it's not like he didn't deal with heavy subjects, but he didn't depend on them, and uh, he didn't hit you with a sucker punch the way a lot of you know, I mean, the, the bloody dolphin swimming through the water in the cove is still burnt into my retinas, and I'm pissed. It's a sucker punch, and, you know, you ought to be able to... It's, you know, every documentary is not for everyone. Right. You have to like gay culture to even really like the Sons of Tennessee Williams at all. It's not a big conversion tool, I don't think. you got to... I made it in the attitude of, I'm a gay person, and... You know, we, we you know we have a shared consciousness. So I'm going to use a bit of that in this movie, and it's going to alienate some of you, but maybe not all of you. But um, you know, I, I think with with the with the, the movie called Mother, which is you know good or you know I mean, all it depends on is somebody dropping some money on me, and I can shoot for six weeks. But um, I think it's really it's it's really uh, rewarding. To, to preserve someone's uh, realities, their truths. You know, it's rewarding from them. They're, they're, that's where you get the reward. You don't get money. Right, right. <laughs> you don't get any money at all. In fact, it'll just, you know, it'll only charge you money. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was awesome you were talking about Wes Blank just now because I was definitely thinking of Always Your Pleasure while watching the movie. Just also because you, you that let people talk. Very gratifying because yeah, yeah, and um, that that everything that, that that people say in in a movie in a documentary doesn't have to be earth shattering, right? Riveting. I like to just it's like people watching. You sit or you're in the neighborhood here and you're hanging out and you step and there's a bit of culture over here, a bit of culture over here. Sometimes you just want to let that absorb it, you know. And I and I and I wish. You know, I wanted the movie to creep in and be mysterious, and I got so much shit for it, I just changed it. You know, now it's like very clear from the beginning what it's about, and you don't have, you know, you have to give away your whole movie in the first, it's like a trailer precedes your your movie, the first three minutes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wanted I wanted uh, the movie to creep in and, and be mysterious and uh, be organic, but it wasn't, <laughs> I didn't have enough footage. So are you are you more happy now with the version that's yeah. on Vimeo? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the ideal. The one version. that's on Channel Twelve. Okay. Vimeo. Yeah. Um, 
it's, I don't think it's the I haven't given it I can't remember <laughs> I think I told First Run Features my distributor to put the new one on for Vimeo on demand I'll have to check but like another year or something or or you can watch it on Channel 12 like some year right and you'll see the difference when about does that play it's always I, I always get like three or four you know Muses Thursday is my that's your spot my 9 p.m. <laughs> yeah yeah it's cool I figure you know especially if it's especially if it's <laughs> raining uh, people people and you know I mean this is weird weird combination of people like it you know yeah like old ladies like it <laughs> and lesbians seem to like it sorry to generalize but you know here it doesn't ha- it has very little to do you know it's all about watching the boys do their thing you know basically and, and uh i tried to get uh, sort of alice brady was a, a legendary bar owner and lesbian and, and she didn't want to be interviewed so, but you know, the women come, used to come and to when I showed it in P Town, and they freaking loved it. So, it's weird. I keep trying to figure out the common denominator for people that like because a lot of people don't like it. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, um, for whatever reason, and I think I know what it, I mean, it boils down to I think I told this to you you have a good heart if you enjoy these simple recollections. Yeah. You know? It's a very Instead specific of demanding pocket. more from your from your <laughs> from your come on, you know, from your documentary. It's a very specific set of people just telling their own personal story. Yeah, and if you don't like it, it's just watch something else. <laughs> if you don't like it, watch something else. <laughs> um after that part of the conversation, uh we talked for a good another twenty minutes or so and then um a lot of it uh, was a little loose, so I kind of cut it down, but uh, Tim also closed off talking about a movie he wants to make coming up. Uh, and I'm just going to let him speak for himself. It's definitely uh, the kind of idea that does not <laughs> leave your thoughts easily. I've been kind of mulling over the last few days. I don't even know what to think about it myself, so enjoy. Well, you know, I cover gay culture around the world. That's cool. What's the most, you know... What's the worst place to be gay in the entire world? Like, who, who, who's the most marginalized of, of LGBT people? And I kind of narrowed it down to Central Africa, which is basically a death sentence to be gay at all. And then I thought about colonialism and searching on the internet. I saw some pictures of, you know, those old black and whites of a British person in a pith helmet and job furs and a, you know, a pygmy standing next to them, you know, or a, a line of pygmy women with their breasts exposed or whatever, this sort of like studying of the species and, and all that, you know, <laughs> yeah, really creepy shit. So, so I dug a little deeper and I was like, turns out that the pygmy tribes people, which is 20 different tribes or more all over Central Africa are are the most frequently enslaved individuals in the world. Um, like something like 90% of the displaced uh, pygmy tribes people are enslaved when they leave the jungle. So I thought, my God, you know, I could 
try to capture the life of someone who lives in a completely untenable sort of existence. And so, um, basically, I'm going to make a movie about, I want to make a movie about 21st century slavery through the eyes of a, of a gay pygmy. That sounds like the complete opposite. <laughs> yeah, so rough. And it takes a lot more time. If somebody wants to be outraged. That's good because it's supposed to. It's one of those movies that outrages ignorant people and people who are ignorant of the actual story that's being told, which is usually people before they go in. <laughs> but if you can get people outraged at your movie, at your movie poster, at your title, you oh my god, you're so much farther along than somebody else. <laughs> Especially if you redeem yourself in the course of a movie. Michael Moore does that. Yeah. And so that's why My Little Pygmy is... Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to try to... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make whatever movie... I, nobody gives a shit, first of all. But if somebody were to give me money for something because they saw the mother trailer, well, yay, I'll do that. But I can work with the U.S. government on my travels and try to go there and dire situation any any kind of attempt to cover the, the lives of, of these people is 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 worthwhile if you could rescue them even better so I mean part of the shtick that I want to outrage people in order for them to come and, and learn about 21st century slavery is that I'm going to go to Africa and I'm going to buy a slave wow so the poster in some ways going to you know and I'm like gonna keep the slave <laughs> in order to prove that somebody is a slave I'm gonna have the exchange of cash for a person that comes with me who then decides on his or her own what sort of future they want with my help and uh, you know some form of political asylum somewhere where they can have clean water and food available as opposed to where they've the, the, the deforestation what it's done to their normal survival yeah we'll see what happens i'm going to try to try to get to the congo soon uh and then uh build that's build that movie from contacts that i make there wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely much darker territory <laughs> It is, it's, it's only dark because you're actually accessing uh, the colonialism in everybody. Right. It makes them go, mm, that's dark. Well, is it? Or is somebody talking about it? And, you know, somebody's rubbing it in your face, right. basically. You know, to say you're going to see a movie called My Little Pygmy and the, the poster such as it is and all that. And, you know, people are going to know that they're not. You know, that <laughs> this is... I wanted to masquerade as an exploitation doc, yeah. you know, because that's what that's what will make people angry and get them perhaps to watch it. And uh, but the, you, you're, you're going to leave with a complete story of 21st century slavery in a specific region in Africa. And um, although there's more coverage of such such things, um, it's, it's 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 also quite a, quite an unknown you know concept that that people are. Um, African slavery is alive and well. You know, I want to make it. I want to make it funny too. Oh, Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> you 
and depending on what this individual wants, I mean, if, if somebody came to me with a, the, and said, I'm going to help you leave this terrible situation that you're in, in life, even if it was just as a gay man in Africa, would be enough. Like, ooh, well, it might be nice to stay here with my family and live the way I've lived, but in fact, I want to get the fuck out because somebody's going to beat me to death. And I'm not willing to let somebody do that. So, you know, as, as it so happens, there are relief organizations and people working with uh, organizations to try to rescue other LGBT people from, from Uganda and other places, and this would be yet another one. But, uh, you know, I have a particular style, and I, you know, I, I like to take on really dark subjects and do it in a, in a way that makes you laugh. I like to make fun of things that scare me. And um, so it's just seeing when, when people say, oh, I know they're thinking, ooh, that's really dark. And, and I just think, why not extinguish colonialism, give it its last little, you know, exposition so that people would recognize it in themselves or from their initial reaction learn something about it. You know, these will be the things that, the defenses that I have that are built into the movie. No, I went and took basically my life into my hands to go try to shine a light on something. When I couldn't save 10 people or 100 people, I was able to save one person in order to tell the story that it might motivate you or you or you or you to, instead of sending money for a goat, why don't you buy the damn person's personal freedom and find them a life? <laughs> <laughs> More flabbergasted. Yeah, I, it's a flabbergasting thing, and I'm really glad to see you flabbergasted. Uh, it's, it's supposed to. It's supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to say, oh, I've, I've heard of that. Right, right. No, you're supposed to say, fuck, I've never heard of that. I mean, the closest I could think of is uh, the act of killing and look of silence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those, yeah. Were, those were rough. <laughs> not fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, really, really brilliant. Yeah, not fun to watch. Not fun to watch. Mine would be fun to watch. I'm right. sorry. I mean, I'm... It's a different world. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I don't really even know how to end it after that. <laughs> <laughs> Last word. Uh, this well, is thank good. you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs>